Hi, this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. Welcome to the Memorial Day Podcast Marathon, featuring a variety of episodes. Hi, this is Tony Chilato. If there's one author that has really influenced a lot of science fiction, it's Philip K. Dick. And now Amazon is launching Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams, an interesting anthology series that's going to be doing things a little differently than most series. Some episodes are already available on Amazon, joining the other Philip K. Dick series, Man in the High Castle. I look at the principles involved and how this series hopes to ensure the survival of the much maligned anthology series. These were taped at New York Comic Con and first are Issa Hackett, who is actually the daughter of Philip K. Dick, and Michael Winner, two of the executive producers of the series. They chat about the origin of this anthology series. We died in relative obscurity, which most people don't know. Um, and maybe we've caught up to some of the ideas. Um, it was con considered, you know, somebody who had a lot of paranoid thoughts, didn't necessarily resonate with people. And I think now a lot of us are starting to look around and realize that we're questioning our own reality, which makes me think a lot about my dad's work, which was a constant questioning of reality. Um, you know, there are some people um, right now that are creating their own reality, which is then bleeding into other people's reality. And, you know, so it feels like we're in a Philip K. Dick novel right now. Um, but, but I just, I do think that the universal themes, um, the, the sort of um, existential explorations resonate with people because they just are fundamental questions that we all grapple with. So There's more sci-fi talk, so stay tuned. Well, you'd been trying to get an anthology series off the ground for a while, and then, I don't know, about five years ago, we started talking about this. They actually approached me about uh, reading the story. There's 120 plus stories and reading the stories and, and uh, picking one to adapt. And I started reading them and I had the audacity to call them and say, uh, how about all of them? Um, you know, when I was a kid, I would sneak away my parents didn't want me to watch, but I watched The Twilight Zone. And um, I just thought, you know, even though anthology was a dirty word in, in, in Hollywood for a while, I thought maybe the time was ripe again. There's so many different venues, and you know, whether it's streaming services or cable. So we started kicking around this idea, and it started with this crazy notion um, what if we ask writers and directors and, and actors uh, to come play for, an, for, I don't want to call it an episode, let's call it a film, a little film. And would they come? And, and the truth of the matter is that they did. So it started with this cockamamie notion of doing things differently than we normally do TV. I mean, you probably know in, in television terms, you'll have a writing staff and, and you'll sit in a room and break stories and it's agonizing for three months and then you start turning out the scripts for the season. And the notion in this is what happens if we go to writers we really admire and say, are you interested in Philip K. Dick? Would you like to do one? Is there one that, that you personally love? If you're, if you're not that familiar with the short stories, we'll supply you from kind of the, the library, the archive. So it started with this notion, well, what if we did that and then uh, not have a traditional writer's room? We didn't have really a writing staff. I mean, we would exercise notes and, and but it's kind of like an all-star team. And so that's, you know, it took a while to, to sell the project. We finally did sell it. Uh, and then we started actively developing it with, with writers that we loved. And it's kind of, in a way, we, I think we developed 12 scripts in the first year, 10 of which we shot. Um, 
And then lo and behold, yes, if, some were writer-directors, so they stayed on to direct their projects, and, and some were writers we paired with directors. Then uh, would the actors come? Well, first they responded to the brand, to Philip K. Dick, but they responded to the scripts. The, script, the scripts were interesting and strong, so it was kind of fun. We got to invent a new world and a new cast every week. Uh, one of the themes, I think, that Philip K. Dick did so well was not only reality, but humanity, questioning what is it to be human, like do androids dream of that, that story? Uh, is that something that's going to be covered in addition? I think it's really vital in the stories. I mean, look, it's kind of like the existential, you know, post-World War II existential questions. Who, who are we? The world's gotten more, com world got more complicated from when your dad was writing. Every decade it gets more complicated. And so we all go through it, you know, if we're thinking people at all. Who are we? What's our place in the, in the universe? Where do we go from here? So those are really vital things, but you know, the underlying thing about these stories, they're extremely emotional. I, I've told this story a number of times. The first script that came in was from one of our British writers, and it, it, it arrived, you know, I heard my phone ping at about 5.15 in the morning, and I get up early to take my kids to school, so I get up early anyway, and I decide I'm going to sit on the floor of the bathroom, just, I'll just take a glance at the script. And I started reading it, and by the time I was done, I was in tears. These stories are really, you know, they're, story, they're father-son stories, they're husband-wife stories, they're, they're really stories about what, what, what are our vital relationships in the world, how do we make our, our way through the world. So I think if we've done our job, people will find them to be emotional. It's not just sci-fi. They're very humanistic. And I think that's what made your dad what he was. The stories are about the human condition. It's not just the you know, guys flying around in space. You know, it's really... Yeah, I mean, it's and that's that's what was important when we look at this. The, the, the trappings of, of genre can't lead the way. That really has to be the story about the characters. We started developing it with Channel 4 in Great Britain, and then Amazon stepped in also. Um, you know, it's kind of cool to do a streaming show. I, I hadn't done one until last year. I, I also do the show Sneaky Pete, so I've never done a, a streaming show before. And it's weird. It's like you do all your work, and then all of a sudden, bang, it's up. And you go, what? But, it, you know, in a weird way, because it's an anthology, I kind of liken this to, there are some novels that are collections of short stories, that each chapter stands on its own as a short story, but, it, you know, like Winesburg, Ohio, or Dubliners. In a way, if, if this works, it's, be, it's, it's like that. So the idea that it goes up at the same time, and you can read a chapter, or go on to the next chapter, or read the last chapter, um, is kind of exciting, I think, you know. Um, but it is an odd thing, you know, the streaming model is strange. Uh, we went up on Stinky Pete last year, and it's the first time I experienced it. It's like, all of a sudden it's there, and it's, wow, all that work, and it's, it's up at 12.01. But people respond, you know, people, and, and some people respond immediately, like they've just seen an airing on, on regular TV or cable, and some people, like, three months later will discover it, so it's, you can pick up a book at your leisure, you know. Um, but I think in some ways it's a really good venue for, for, for an anthology instead of doing it week by week. I, to me, it's more exciting to put the novel up and see if people like the book. Again, not to harken back to Twilight Zone. When I was a kid, the music would come up, it would tilt to the stars, and you'd say, okay, where are you going to take me this week? So hopefully it's emotional and thought-provoking, and people say, hey, that was a cool one. I, I want to see the next. You know, so in a way, it's kind of like it's about the journey, as opposed to recurring characters and, um, you know, like I said, we have a title sequence that will drive us into, into the show, you know, episode by episode, film by film. But um, to me, it's kind of exciting to be able to... I've done, you know, the Prime of the Week show. I've done 
an arced out show that could, the story could take place over a year or five years. Um, this is a, a different beast, and the diversity in the points of view, in the storytelling, and yet it's odd. When the scripts started coming in, they're all different, but they felt of a piece to me. They kind of felt like I wanted to see what the twist was at the end, and I wanted to, I wanted to feel something. Now let's look at one of the episodes with actor Liam Cunningham of Game of Thrones fame. He is in the episode Human Is with actor Brian Cranston. As an actor, one of the things, you, you, you know, you can sit there all you like and go, you know, I'm going to do big movies and I'm going to blah, 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 this, that, and all that bullshit. But all you can kind of hope for is the company that you keep. Um, you'd like to see yourself in the company of people that you respect. And Mr. Cranston has brought me and my family years and years and years from my, when my kids were small with Malcolm in the middle to Breaking Bad or whatever. They, my kids have grown up with Mr. Cranston and he's on set. He's, uh, he's everything you'd wish for. He's just completely professional, completely passionate. His attention to detail when we're working both on script and with where's the shots and blah, blah. He's, he's, he has a childlike passion for what he's doing and he's been in the game a long time. And you just kind of go, well, look, there's hope for me. If this guy hasn't been spoiled by success, hasn't sat on his laurels uh, and loves telling the stories. Um, and as he said, the, the most important thing is the, is the characterization, the character that you're watching, the story. If the characters are good, the story, the story will follow because you'll have an empathy for them or you'll, 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 you know, you'll wish them on. You'll... Essie is just luminous. She's fantastic in the show. And... Uh, I mean, I, I play the boss, but it's very much the emotional journey of the whole thing is, is their marriage. Um, and uh, so I kind of play the boss. I put him in harm's way and, and, uh, and put him in a bit of trouble when he gets back. So uh, he's not a bad guy, but I'm a general and I want things done properly. But, but, uh, but Brian's, uh, Brian's characterization is absolutely fantastic. And he's got a, he's got a real shift of, of character in it. And... Uh, Essie's just, it's like, it's, it, it's Shakespearean what she's doing, especially towards the end of it. It's really, really beautiful. And she's got some gorgeous words to say. And Ruth Bradley, it's just, look, it, you just feel, you feel really nice. And it's science fiction and it's Philip K. Dick. And it's, you know, you're just going to go, you gonna, I, I hopped out of the bed in the morning. There's no, there was no difficulty tearing myself off my pillow when I was working on this. It was really lovely. He was talking about Essie Davis, who stars along with Brian Cranston. Here's more on Game of Thrones. Well, it's not a time thing. I know I, I understand the question. It's not a time thing because before Game of Thrones, that was more or less what I did all the time. I hit the ground running. I'd do a job, maybe a movie for three months and then was unemployed and had my nails bitten down to the quick. Um, so to actually <coughs> have a run of, what is it now, seven years now or whatever I've had on this, to the tax man is not kicking down my door uh, and I've actually got a couple of quid in the bank for the first time which is which is about to stop because this fucking season ends my accountant is, has his nails bitten down to the quick the security aspect of just personally was, was really nice but I mean artistically from the other side to be you know I got involved in a television programme and it became a cultural phenomenon um, you just want as, a, as an actor if you like if you love acting it's always about the words and the the, the, the guys give me beautiful, beautiful words to say. They they try and trip me up with speeches. They they kind of they got the measure of me as an actor, and they they throw they slide and I go, oh man, you're kidding me. They they know I'm going to be working for hours in a hotel room on my own, looking like a mad person, trying to get the rhythms of speeches. And they 
they uh, they bring me to the gym, David and Dan, as <laughs> the acting gym, uh, and I love it. It's almost this almost some of the stuff is uh, is a puzzle that needs working out, and it works out with repetition and being alone and with large pots of coffee. Um, and it's great. It's it's great. It's it's like a very very difficult crossword puzzle that I love doing. And then we get to do it in front of a camera with other fabulous actors. It's it's fantastic. It sounds like a fascinating episode. I really I, that's definitely one I'm going to see. I probably end up binging on this series. It, it, I think it's going to be that good. There's more sci-fi talk, so stay tuned. Back on Sci-Fi Talk, I'm Tony Tolado. Here is more with executive producers Ron Moore. Of Star Trek The Next Generation and Battlestar Galactica fame, and also David Cantor. So, uh, anthology is not a dirty one? Not anymore. No? <laughs> cool. Couldn't, you couldn't even pitch one like 10 years ago yeah, at all, even, even five years ago. But everything comes back around, you know? It does, it does. What, what made uh, you guys jump on board? The stories. I mean, the fact that the opportunity uh, that Issa provided to us, that Issa provided to us to take this extraordinary trove of her dad's work and to reinterpret it with the screenwriters and directors whom we admire and want to work with. Like she gave us, she said, just make them really good and just try to make them contemporary. Don't try to do them as written. And and it was, it's amazing. I mean, these are the, the most extraordinary, it's the most extraordinary trove of material to work with. As a producer, it's just gold. I didn't know the short stories before this project, you know, because they've been, there's a, a complicated publication history, I think, and they've been, they were published in various ways, and a lot of them were out of print for a long time, so I had never, I wasn't familiar with them at all, so they were all kind of like brand new, like, oh, you know, and uh, I got, the one I did uh, is called Real Life, and it's based on a short story called A, a Museum Piece, and... I was really just inspired by the concepts within it, so my adaptation was took it pretty far afield. If you read it and then watched the show, you're going, wait a minute, that is really, what? Because it's just about, it's a show about the nature of reality and what's real and what's not, and I took it into sort of a virtual reality realm and played with these two characters in very different places, questioning the nature of the reality. With And in the show, it's Anna Paquin and Terrence Howard, and in the short story, it's just one character's journey, so it's really a completely different thing. But yeah, it was very taken with it and I was happy to do that one and I think most of the writers approached it you know it was a big bucket of stories and they all kind of found the one that really spoke to them you know sometimes they all they might have been a couple of writers circling around the same story but by the time it really came time to pick one everyone had sorted themselves out into the ones that were actually more inspirational was there an anthology series that was an inspiration for this one we talked a lot about the Twilight Zone not structurally, but I think what Michael would talk about a lot was, you know, his experience watching it as a kid, knowing that there was this almost this reassuring voice at the beginning saying, "You're about to, you know, you're the tilt, the camera tilts up to the, the heavens, and you start this journey." And he always felt like that's what we're going to do is we're going to start each episode in a way that we know that you're going to be on this incredible journey. And then we always had these, through development and through selling the show, it was like, what's the theme? How do you make them consistent? How do you do all this? And, and we were like, we kind of don't know. Let us finish the the work. And then we, we believe that what is essentially Philip K. Dick will filter up 
and and will be surrounded by the Philip K. Dick sensibility and the feelings. And what we talked about a lot with people is like, we're making the greatest tribute album ever. Ten different musicians, all interpreting ten great songs by one songwriter. And you know, let us put it together and present it to the world as a as a tribute album. I mean, the one thing we did talk, the other thing we talked about Twilight Zone was sort of not to do was not to feed into the popular idea that Twilight Zone was all about the big twist at the end. And so we were always at pains to say, look, we're not doing that. That's not the show. It's not that every show has to end with the big surprising twist because that is a trap. Once you get into that, that that's got to be every episode. And the truth is, the original Twilight Zone wasn't like that either. That's just what people remember the most about it. So it sounds like there was freedom to, as you did with your story, is to take the story and kind of develop it in your own way, yeah. but kind of staying to the core of the, what the themes were. Yeah, what you uh, what inspired you within that short story. Right. So each writer, we would ask them, what is it? Why do you want to do this one? What inspires you about it? Okay, go you know really lean into whatever that is and if it follows the basic contours of the original story great and if it doesn't go you know just whatever you've read here and it, it inspires you to write something just run with that idea none of us had ever done an anthology because it had been a dirty word for so long there wasn't a lot of experience in the field so it was all kind of fresh territory i mean we knew that black mirror has a different mandate than we do you know right. black mirror has a very specific focus about technology and ours was just very broad and it was, and it was one writer a living show running writer in that show who from whom all the inspiration is drawn we were taking the opposite approach we have one dead writer right who can't speak so we have to we have to try to figure out how to interpret him and then we had 10 directors and 10 writers. And yeah. then the group of us sort of trying to oversee the management of, as it tried to move forward in the system of making television. We got very lucky. I, we owe a lot to the people at Sony who supported this project before it made any sense. They focused on Philip K. Dick's standout themes in all of his works. The, the two recurrent themes that I found, that I think we all found in his work, are the questions of what does it mean to be human and what is the nature of reality? You see that over and over and over in all the things, virtually everything he did. And those are eternal questions and they're timeless questions and they're just fun. And each of us, each one of these shows could dig into those questions in very different ways and thematically they kind of link the whole series. I think what's going to ensure the survival is that the fact that they are looking for more voices to tell these stories. Behind the camera and behind the word processor. And we're thinking about it more as we go forward. Um, you know, partly there was this notion, I don't know if you can say this, but, you know, initially tr work with the tried and true because it's such a dangerous uh, enterprise to, to say it's expensive and it's not been done. You know, but I think everyone in the system is is aware that we, you know, that we want want to bring more voices, and that speaks to exactly what our inspiration was: was how do you make this material feel fresh and contemporary? So, not to single anyone out, but we had female directors, female writers, and and you know, we're we will continue to be mindful of bringing in more voices. We want to maybe try to do things in other languages. 
you know, just we want to try different stuff, but we won't be able to do that in, in, until we're a success. Hopefully we will be. And then we'll have a little bit more of an ability to push out and, and present to the networks. Hey, we want to try this this thing. We were right once before. We might be right again. It's it's a little bit you got to take it a step at a time, but the question is the right question. It must be challenging, too, because there's no writer's room per se. So there's almost like you're working without a net in In a lot of ways, I mean, it's interesting. It feels almost like a throwback to, you know, TV from a couple of generations ago. Because being a freelance television writer used to be a thriving business. You know, people made their livings as freelancing everything from Magnum PI to Hill Street Blues. And the writer's room sort of evolved over time. And now everyone's on staff, you know, and so you're used to having writer's rooms on every single thing. But there used to be a format of just bringing in freelancers to do all kinds of... The original Star Trek yeah. is, is completely freelance. Well, it's not completely freelance. It's a couple of people internally that wrote a lot of episodes, but they freelanced a lot of the, those shows. So there is a style of doing that. It just means working one-on-one with each individual writer on their piece, and it's easier on an anthology in a lot of ways than it is on a, on a serial show because you don't have to know everything that went before you and everything that's coming after you. You just have to know what your show is about. And that makes it simpler for that freelance writer and it's less of a commitment to time and it's a little bit more fun and they come in and they do their thing, they do their drafts and then they can go away. They're not like with us for, you know, years and years. And you're not trying to make the, you're not trying to have the show come out with one voice. A must-see look for Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams on Amazon Prime. Special thanks to New York Comic Con and Amazon. This is Tony Tolado. Thanks for listening.